are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. Glad you could join me today on what is for me here on the West Coast of the United States, a Thursday afternoon. Don't know what time it is for you and whatever time zone you're in. But if we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik, and I am a pastor, a preacher, a Bible teacher. And one thing that's kind of unique about me is I have a online Bible commentary that some people find helpful. It's called the Enduring Word Bible Commentary, and it is available absolutely free online. Uh, we do have it in print form as well. But really, uh, what you have in print is the same as what you get online. So the only reason to get it in print is not for the content, but just because you like it in a print version as opposed to a screen. But that Bible commentary, the Enduring Word Bible commentary, has been online for well more than 25 years. First on the Blue Letter Bible. Shout out to my good friends at Blue Letter Bible. Hey, Jim, Frank, Andy, Tony, the whole team over there. Love you guys. And uh, you guys doing a marvelous work for the kingdom. Uh, so first, my Bible commentary was on Blue Letter Bible. Then within a year or two, we made our own website called it EnduringWord.com. And uh, again, we get a fair number of people every day, every year that uh, use the commentary. And we're thrilled about that. I'm happy to say that even though I don't have the exact numbers at hand, uh, by a pretty good margin, more people have accessed the commentary this year than any previous year, and uh, we're grateful for it. So what we do here on a Thursday afternoon is we answer your questions live from the live chat in YouTube. Now, if you're one of our TWR 360 viewers, God bless you. Thank you for joining us here. Uh, we're happy to have a partnership where this program is displayed on the TWR 360 website. Uh, TWR 360 is that amazing ministry, Trans World Radio 360, that has and continues to do such a marvelous work uh, through the decades, through shortwave radio, but then now also they have a great online presence. Uh, but if you're part of that, you need to come over, if you have a question to ask, you need to come over to our YouTube live stream and leave the question in the live chat. Our moderator will select the questions that he thinks are of the most interest to everybody. Look, let, let me be right up front with you. I do not tell our moderator to avoid certain questions or certain so-called hard questions or anything like that. No, that, that's not the idea. Uh, just I tell him to pick the questions that he thinks will be of most interest to a broad audience. And uh, now, usually on a Thursday, we begin with a lead question. That's something that I didn't get to in a previous week, or it's a question that has come in by social media or email or whatever. Uh, so usually I begin with a lead question, but not this week. This week, it's ask me anything. We're going straight to the live chat. And um, I've got a few other comments that I want to say for the end of the program. I'll say them a few times, but let's get right now to our first question from Ethan, who asked this question. Hey, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned in the ministry? All right, Ethan, uh, thank you for that question. And let me tell you that the, I don't know if I'd say it's the biggest. This is a big thing that I've learned in the ministry. And when, when I thought about your question, this just came immediately to mind. So I'll say it. Maybe if I gave more time to think about it, I'd think of something else to respond with. But this is what came immediately to mind. 
Ethan, there's a paradox in ministry when it comes to the minister. Here's the paradox. It's not all about you, and it is all about you. Let me explain that paradox. And that understanding that paradox on both aspects has been very important for me to, to learn about ministry over the years. First of all, it's not all about you. Hey, uh, minister, servant of God, whether you're an elder, a deacon, a pastor, a preacher, a Sunday school class leader, a ministry head, a worship leader, whatever it is. Hey, servant of God in whatever, it's not all about you. You're there not to serve yourself. You're there to serve the Lord and to serve the people, whether they're people in the congregation or whether it's people in the needy world, whatever it is. It's not all about you. Don't let your feelings get hurt so easily. Don't, uh, don't take things personally. Um, and let me tell you, that's very difficult to do in ministry. Because in ministry, if you really give your heart to the people that you serve, whether they're in the church or out of the church, you're going to be hurt. And that hurt can uh, make up what some people might call scar tissue over a person's heart. But you, you have to learn in ministry how to constantly keep a focus on Jesus and keep a focus on the people that God has called you to serve. As Jesus said, and this is a great theme of that, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So that's the first part of that paradox. It's not all about you. But then here's the second part of the paradox. It is all about you. And wh what do I mean by that? Well, God uses the ministry to refine the minister. There were times when I would be filled with, um, you know, frustration maybe even resentment against the Lord. Lord, why is this so difficult? Why, why uh, is this so painful sometimes to, to do this? Now, I, I don't want to give the impression that ministry was always or is always like that. Not at all. But, but there were certainly times when, when it was very frustrating, very difficult, sometimes very hurtful. And, and I think one of God's messages to me in such seasons was that I needed that. Look, we, we sometimes talk about God's work in us being like a refiner's fire. Well, the fire gets hot. And it shouldn't surprise servants of God if they experience that heat of God's refining process in the ministry that they serve. So much of what I would experience in trial and difficult and may continue to do in ministry um, is God's refining work in me, drawing me closer to him conforming me into the image of his son. So, Ethan, I would keep that paradox in mind. It's not all about me, and it is all about me, just in a different sense and all at the same time. Ethan, thank you for your question, and God bless you for that. Next question comes from S.C. Grandma, who asks, My son-in-law says the possession of Israel by the Jews was conditional and that they are an apostate and have no rights to it. I disagree. Is there any scripture that could support his view? Well, S.C. Grandma, yes, there, there are passages of scripture where God says that he will cast Israel out of the land uh, for them being disobedient. Uh, when God made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, an important part of that covenant 
You see, I, I say that the Sinai, Mosaic, Old Covenant, whatever title you want to give it, I, I would say that it had three important aspects. There was the law, that's basically the rules, the commands. Then there was not only the law, but there was also uh, the sacrifice. The sacrifice was necessary because they couldn't always keep the law, of course. But then after the law and the sacrifice, there was the additional aspect of the choice that Israel had. And what choice did Israel have? Israel had the choice of being blessed or cursed, and that choice would be dependent upon their obedience or disobedience to the law. And in many ways, that choice has been the legacy of the Jewish people ever since. Well, one of the curses that God promised for a disobedient Israel was that he would cast them out of the land. But, but check this out. There were always promises of restoration given to Israel. Always promises of restoration. So, I understand why your son-in-law says this and why other Christians say that. But I think that they're seeing the, the, the passage of Scripture that says God will do this to a disobedient Israel, but they're neglecting the passages that God speaks about Israel's restoration to the land. Now, I, I, again, I'm anticipating what they would say. They would say, well, Israel was restored to the land after the Babylonian captivity. Look, it just when you look at those promises in context, I think that they go beyond that. And here's another aspect I would insist on. When you look at several of the passages relevant to the new covenant, especially in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, those are the main new covenant passages, uh, a few different places in those two books. Part of the promises of the new covenant is the restoration of Israel and, and land restoration. Again, I understand that there's believers who spiritualize these things. Okay, it says land, but it doesn't mean land. It says Israel, but it doesn't mean Israel. Well, I, I, I would just respectfully disagree. And, and I would say that the restoration of Israel eventually and the restoration to the land are ideas that are so important to God that he has woven them even into the new covenant. So, um, your Grandma, that's why your son-in-law is saying that based on those passages. I would just say that in some way or another, he's neglecting or not giving enough um, view to the many promises of restoration, including the ultimate promises of restoration for Israel. Thank you for that question. Next one comes from Johanna, who asks, is it possible for a small child to be under demonic influence? If a child is exhibiting troubling physical behaviors that were not learned from home, how can the family go about praying against it? Johanna, this is a difficult question to answer because it's so personal. Um, I... I can hardly think of anything more terrifying for a parent than to think that their child is under some kind of demonic influence. But Johanna, I have to say that there is some biblical pattern for this. I can think of at least two examples in the Gospels where there were children who were afflicted with some kind of demonic possession or affliction, and Jesus delivered them. One was with the man, uh, I, I, well, again, I, I'm thinking of the two situations, but we, we have some examples of this in the Gospels. To me, there are some general principles 
about what opens doors to demonic influence, general principles that can person can understand. I think that doors to the demonic can be opened by pursuit when a person pursues things of uh, satanic or demonic or occultic origins. I think that doors to the demonic can be opened uh, inadvertently when people are innocently drawn into, or relatively innocently drawn into um, occultic things that they think of are games or uh, make-believe, but th- there's actually a power behind that they don't understand. I think that it's possible for demonic doors to be opened uh, through drug use. And I take that based on the idea of pharmakia in the Greek New Testament and kind of all of what that was associated with back in ancient times. Uh, But then there's other aspects to openness to demonic influence, demonic influence that comes in, and I think that are just a mystery. We we just don't know why. I'm not saying that there's not a good and understandable reason. I'm just saying that it can't be seen. It can't be understood. So, Joanna, if you believe that it's possible that your child or a child you know is beset by demonic influence— I would get together the the people in your life who are the the strongest, uh, the most mature, the wisest, the holiest in their practical life, and have them fast and pray for your child or the child that you believe could be afflicted. If it's not true that the child is demonically afflicted in some way, If that isn't true, I don't think that does any harm. Uh, But if it is true, I think that that can be come against in the power of Jesus. You know, believers have the precious assurance that we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. That's what it promises in James. We can submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, and God promises that the devil will flee. However, um, there may be times in our life where we, um, we need help from other brothers and sisters, just like we might need help from other brothers and sisters in just about any enterprise in life. So I, I hope that's helpful for you there, Johanna. Lord God, I, I pray for Johanna and this child that she knows, whether it's her own child or someone she knows, and I pray that you would give them great wisdom in this situation. Lord, There are aspects about this that are both terrifying and mysterious, especially to a parent. Lord, would you show your goodness and your grace to Johanna and to others um, in similar situations? Do it by the power and the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Next question comes from Leo, who asks, Pastor Guzik, Can you discuss what Moses did to not go into the promised land? You state in your commentary in Deuteronomy 34 that he misrepresented God. Okay, Leo, yes. um, Again, I I don't have the chapter and verse in front of me, but in the book of Numbers, it describes how, uh, and I would look up the relevant passage in my commentary in the book of Numbers. Um, But Moses was commanded to speak. The people of Israel needed water in the wilderness. And they complained to Moses. God told Moses, speak to the rock and it'll provide forth water. Well, Moses was very frustrated, very annoyed with the people of Israel. So instead of speaking to the rock, he used his rod, his staff, and he struck the rock. And 
And God didn't tell God didn't tell him to be angry or frustrated with the people. They had a legitimate need. Uh, number two, God didn't tell him to strike the rock. He told him to speak it. And number three, since that rock was a picture of the coming Messiah and the provision he would bring, Moses had already struck the rock on a previous occasion. He wasn't to do it again. Be- because in the picture that God was creating, Christ was crucified once. Now, of course, that was all future in Moses' day, but God wanted Moses to act in a way that would be in accord with that picture that would be presented in Jesus Christ. Because of Moses' disobedience on that many levels, God said, you're not going into the promised land. Now, Leo, I I don't want to say for a moment that God just used this as an excuse. No, not one bit, but it was fitting because as godly as Moses was, he was part of that generation that came out of Egypt. And all of that generation died in the promised land with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. The rest of it, promised land, was occupied by the generation that grew up in the wilderness. So uh, it was really this idea of misrepresenting God through striking the rock instead of speaking to it. Now, before I go on to the next question, let me say a couple things. First of all, uh, Leo, your question reminds me of the great video we have on our video channel. You guys should check it out. Um, uh, Is Jabal Makal the true Mount Sinai? Uh, A little more than a year ago, a little less than a year ago, I think we went in January, February of 2023, um, me and a a few dear friends, guys who help with the ministry here of Enduring Word, uh, we went on a journey to see the place in Saudi Arabia that's purported to be Uh, Mount Sinai. There's divergent ideas. Is Mount Sinai in the Egypt and Sinai Peninsula, or is it on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba uh, there in Saudi Arabia? And here's a great trip. You guys got to check out that video because we went to the place Rephidim, where in the first occurrence, Moses would have struck the rock and water would have come forth. If that whole conception is true, which I think it is, but I just do want to recognize that there's some debate about it out there. That's the first thing I wanted to say. But before going on the next question, I want to say one other thing. Thank you. Thank you to all of you who pray for the work of Enduring Word. And thank you, too, to those of you who feel led and have uh, donated. You, you've, you've contributed financially to the work of Enduring Word. Um, right now, we, we've just got a few more days left in our year-end campaign, uh, year-end for 2023. And I, I just got to say, I praise God for the generosity of our Enduring Word family. You guys help the work to go forward. You help us to get a Bible commentary out and other Bible resources, Bible resources, audio, video, YouTube, version, podcast, email. Um, I'm sure there's others that I'm forgetting, radio program. You, you help all this to go out through your generosity at no cost to the people who receive it. We don't even have paid ads on our website. And believe me, we get enough traffic on the website to where there'd be at least some money in that for us. But again, um, it's through your generosity. I just want to say thank you. Thank you to those who pray and thank you to those who help support the ministry of Enduring Word. Uh, I'm genuinely grateful. And if I remember, I'll try to say that one more time before we uh, end because... Not everybody tunes in for the whole thing. Okay, let me go on to the next question here from Brianna, who asks, I know that we are under a new covenant, 
But does the Lord deal with disobedience the way now, the way he did in Deuteronomy 28? Oh, great. Brianna, this is a great question because this gets back to the question that um, SC Grandma asked before, where I was talking about the blessings and cursings. The, the passage you're pointing towards in Deuteronomy 28 has to do with the blessings of obedience that God promises to Israel and the curses for their disobedience. Basically, God made a covenant with Israel and he said, if you obey the law in the way that I tell you, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed. And God basically said to Israel, both when these blessings and cursings are pronounced at the end of Leviticus and when these blessings and cursings are pronounced at the end of Deuteronomy, God said to Israel, uh, I'm going to glorify myself through you. And I will either glorify myself through you by blessing you so much that the world will look and say no nation could ever be blessed unless God was with them. Or if you disobey, I will bless, I, I will glorify myself through you by cursing you so much that the people will look at Israel and say, no nation could be so cursed and still survive if God was not with them. And God said, Israel, I leave it up to you. You decide how I'm going to glorify myself to you, either by blessing you so much or cursing you so much. Now, I think what's remarkable about this is that that mixture of blessing and cursing has really been the history of Israel ever since. Now, Brianna, your question is, we are under a new covenant. Um, does the Lord deal with disobedience now the way that he did in Deuteronomy 28? Okay, let me give you a new covenant answer to that, Brianna. Just quickly, I could give it to you in one word. No, God does not deal with us the same way. Now, I need to qualify that a little bit, but let me explain the no part of it. The Bible specifically says in the book of Galatians that Jesus Christ bore the curse for believers. For those who put their trust in him, Jesus Christ bore the curse for God's people. Therefore, there's no more curse left for them to bear. It was all put upon Jesus at the cross. Those are for believers. Those are for God's elect. Those who have come to God in faith on the terms of the new covenant. Under the new covenant, Jesus Christ bears the curse. And under the new covenant, blessing is not earned by obedience it's received by faith. We don't earn blessing before God under the new covenant. So, uh, Brianna, that's the no part of the answer. Uh, the, it's just a different thing. May, may I just simply tell you, and let me give this little word out to anybody out there who's interested in covenant theology from a reformed perspective. I believe very strongly there's something new about the new covenant. Substantially new. Dramatically new. That it's not just a slightly or moderately improved previous covenant. Okay, so that's the part where I would say no. But I, I will say this, Brianna, and this is, this is an important uh, appendix to put on the answer. God has arranged it that we still live in a cause and effect world. There is blessing and cursing in inherent in disobedience or in obedience. There is cursing inherent when a person disobeys. When you disobey God, there's going to be a lot more trouble in your life, period. 
When you obey God, when you live according to the way he told you to live, there's going to be a lot more blessing in your life. But that's not anything special, so to speak, that God has placed upon as a direct act of his intervention with blessing or cursing. That just has to do with the way that God has created the world, that we live in a cause and effect world, and life is always better when we follow the manufacturer's directions. So apart from that general sense of inherent blessing and cursing, we are not under the law in the same way. So I hope you can see where I would answer, no, the new covenant's different, but yes, we still live in a cause and effect world. I hope that's clear to you, Brianna. Again, great question, and thank you for asking it. Next question comes from Janet, who asks, I'm having a very difficult time forgiving myself for my sins. I've confessed my sins and know that I'm forgiven, but still struggle. Janet, God bless you, dear sister. Listen, I'm so pleased to hear If I could speak so boldly, I'm so pleased to hear that your sin bothers you. You know, sometimes I think there's not enough of that among followers of Jesus today. They're in sin, but it doesn't really bother them. Uh, Jan, it's a good thing that you've been bothered over your sin and that God has done this work of stirring your life for that. It's good that you have a sensitive conscience, Janet, that's good, but It's not good that you can't receive and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ for you and what he has done to forgive your sins. Janet, you you say here, and I'm just going to read the question you ask back to you. I have confessed my sins and I know that I am forgiven, but still struggle. Janet, I believe you've confessed your sins. I'm not questioning that. But Janet, do you really know that you've been forgiven? You see, to me, that's kind of the critical thing. Janet, you don't have the authority to forgive your own sins. I know you phrased your question about having difficulty forgiving yourself, and I understand that. That's the way we normally speak. But if you really think about it, you or I or anybody else in this world, We don't have the authority to forgive our own sins. Only God has that authority. God and none else. So, Janet, what you have to do is ask God to help you be fully persuaded of the forgiveness that he himself grants to you. He's a good God, Janet. He loves you. He cares about you. And For your sin and for the sin of all those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, for all of God's people, their sin was put upon Jesus. And Jan, I just want to ask, how much of the guilt for your sin was put upon Jesus at the cross? A little bit? Most? Or was it all of it? If Jesus Christ bore all the guilt and shame and judgment and wrath that your sin and my sin deserved, If Jesus bore it all, then there's nothing left over for us to hold on to. So, Janet, I would say, ask God to help you be fully persuaded of the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has won for you at the cross, because you do believe in him. You do trust in him. Okay, I'm going to say one more thing, Janet, then go on to the next question. But listen to this as well. 
Uh, it's also possible that you are sort of under spiritual attack where Satan is reminding you of what a great sinner you are. Okay, here's the way to deal with that, Janet. When Satan, or maybe if it's in your own conscience, but let's just say it's Satan. When Satan comes to you and tries to remind you of what a great sinner you are, don't argue with him. I think I read this from Martin Luther, and I won't say his words directly in a quote, uh, but I'll paraphrase Luther's idea here. Luther said, when, when the devil comes to me and tries to convince me that I'm a sinner, I don't argue with him. Matter of fact, I tell the devil that I'm a worse sinner than he even says I am. There's some things he's left out. You know, the devil comes to us and says, oh, look at you. You did this. You did this. You did this. You're such a great sinner. You, you could go to the devil and say, well, you know, you forgot about point four. You forgot about point five and six and seven. The, the whole idea is don't debate with the devil about what a great sinner you are. Admit it. Confess. You're right, devil. I'm a horrible, wretched sinner. I am a great sinner, but I have an even greater savior in Jesus Christ. The whole point of it is, it's not trying to make ourselves seem less of sinners before a holy God. No, we are. But the whole point of it is to come back and to say, no, we are great sinners who have an awesome Savior, an even greater Savior. That might be of help to you, Janet. Thank you for that. Okay. Um, question comes from Varend Erstein. All right. I don't know exactly the... Anyway. Uh, the question is this, what um, does being lukewarm mean? And how does that work with being saved by grace? Because it makes no sense how you're saved by grace, not works. But if you're lukewarm, then you're not saved. I'm confused. Okay, Stein, uh, when you're talking about this passage in the book of Revelation, where Jesus confronts the lukewarm, um, Let's take a look at that, if I can. Give me just a minute here. Okay, I hate to say it because it sounds self-serving, but I'm clicking over to the Enduring Word Bible Commentary, taking a look now at the book of Revelation. Isn't the lukewarm passage there in Luke 3? Let me do a quick uh, search here. Okay. Yes, it's at the Church of Laodicea. And Jesus speaks to them about being lukewarm there in verses 15 and 16. This is how I, I want you to understand. Um, in that passage where Jesus speaks to the lukewarm believer, he, he's not spelling out a doctrine of eternal security or the lack thereof. Now, I'm not saying it's irrelevant to that, but that's not the point of what Jesus is saying. When Jesus says to them that he would cast them out of his mouth, um, verse 15, Revelation chapter 3, I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I know that's a very strong picture, and it is, but it may be indicating uh, merely a lack of fellowship, a lack of abiding in Jesus rather than eternal damnation. Uh, again, there's no specific word there. I, I understand how it could be implied. I, I, I fully get that. But there's no specific word of eternal damnation there. Waden uh, Erstein, I would just say this, that what we have to understand is that if salvation could be forfeit, 
by a person. We're not talking about salvation being lost. My good friend Lance Ralston um, likes to speak about it this way, and I think there's there's something very valid in the way. He says, we're not talking about Christians losing their salvation, but is it possible for a Christian to forfeit their salvation? It's not something you lose. Whoops, I lost it. Where'd it go? No, it's never like that. But is it possible for a Christian to forfeit their salvation? I just want to say that if such a thing were possible, then it wouldn't be manifest primarily in works. It would be primarily manifest in what Paul calls later or previously to Revelation, falling from grace, rejecting Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for your sins, the grounds upon which you are made right with God. It's it's a conscious way of saying, I will save myself instead of looking Jesus to be your savior. So if we're saved by grace and not by works, which is absolutely true, then the danger of forfeiting salvation is found in rejecting grace and turning our back on the grace of God more than it is uh, the sin that a person would commit. Now, it's true that sometimes someone uh, rejecting the grace of God is also tied to a sinful life, but not always, or at least not apparently, as much as a person can see. So, really... um, I would just come back to you, Stein, and say that the text isn't saying, right there in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, it isn't saying kind of what you're perhaps thinking it's saying. But secondly, there is a danger of failing to persevere in the faith, and Christians need to be challenged on this. And the primary way that they need to be challenged is to continue on in the grace of God. Yes, how we live is relevant, but that's an outflow of the believer's proper relationship with God and his grace. I hope that's helpful for you. Let me go to the next question here from Alex. Alex asks, does God heal non-Christians? Before I was a Christian, I miraculously recovered from an injury. I did not follow Christ until 15 years later, but believe God healed me. Is this belief biblical? Alex, um, let me just put it this way. Yes, God can heal an unbeliever. Why not? God can do it. Now, I don't think that God promises to heal an unbeliever. But by the way, I would say, that God does not promise to heal the believer in every circumstance short of the resurrection. For the believer, that is their ultimate healing and promise to every believer, the resurrection of the body, which we all long for and anticipate with great eagerness. But um, God certainly, just out of a sovereign demonstration of his will, may very well heal people who don't believe. It's not like you can claim a promise for that. Uh, But again, God is gracious. Think about all the people that Jesus healed in his ministry. Um, Surely not all of them were believers. Think about the lepers that he healed, uh, but they didn't all come back to thank him. Those ones that didn't come back to thank him, they didn't have a heart very close to Jesus or very much in love with Jesus. So we see examples in the scriptures um, of God healing unbelievers. I don't think that that's a crazy idea at all, Alex. And um, while I can't say for sure about your particular circumstance, 
If you believe you were miraculously healed before you were a believer and God somehow used that in your life, I certainly can't say there's no, there is no, I certainly can say there is no biblical reason to object to that idea. Thank you for that question there, Alex. Okay, uh, here's a combination of questions about repenting and salvation. I'm going to read all three questions and then just kind of deal with them all together here. M asks this question. I have a question. How do you repent? And then uh, Malea Ola asks, how do I yield my heart to God? And then Amy asks, my question is this. Can a person accept Jesus Christ and not repent for their sins, but still be saved? Love these Q&As and enduring word. Okay. M, uh, Malea Ola and Amy, let me get to your question here. The idea in the New Testament about the idea of repentance is to change one's mind. Metanoia is the ancient Greek word or some approximation of that. It's a changing of the mind. It means you used to think this way. Now you think this way. Your mind has changed. Uh, to use an illustration, it's like doing a 180. Maybe I should get out a... Uh... Oh, here we go. Here's uh, my Playmobil Martin Luther figure. Uh, Martin Luther figure is facing this way. Uh, now he's going to repent. He's going to metanoia. Now he's facing this way. Here is the sinner facing this way towards um, uh, sin and unbelief and rejection of Jesus. And now he's metanoia. Now he's facing towards faith and uh, trust in God and a, a desire for righteousness. See, it's just a turn around. So uh, how do you repent? You, you choose to change your mind. Now, I, I know, and rightly so, somebody will say, but David, you can't do that unless God enables you. Well said. I got no problem with that. But God's not going to repent for you. You, you. you can't stand back and say, all right, Lord, you say that repentance is your work in me. So anytime you want me to repent, you just do it in me. I'll, I'll wait, God. You, you can't say, okay, Lord, uh, you say faith is your work in me. So I'll just sit back and wait for you to make me believe. And when you make me believe, then I'll believe. No, it doesn't work like that. There, there is what God does behind the curtain, so to speak. But then there's the way that we actually experience things. And as far as a person's experience is concerned, you choose to repent. You choose to believe. I understand that you can't do it without God working in you. But nevertheless, especially to how it feels to us at the moment, God appeals to our will, to our ability to make real choices in time and space. You person who's rejected Jesus Christ your whole life, God calls upon you right now to choose to repent and believe. So how do you repent? You choose to do it. You say, I used to think this way about Jesus. Now I'm going to think the way the Bible tells me to think about Jesus. I used to think this way about sin. Now I'm going to think this way about sin, what the Bible tells me to do. So you just apply what God says. Now, I'm not going to suggest that a person's thought in every aspect is contrary to what God wants, but probably in most aspects, 
So you turn your back on what the world, the flesh, and the devil think and do about things, and you turn yourself to the Lord. Again, I understand you can't do it without God working in you, but in an experiential level, this is a choice that you make. That's how you repent. That's how you yield your heart to God. You say, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my heart. I'm going to give you my time. I'm going to give you my attention. I'm going to give you my affection. I'm going to give you my concern today. It all belongs to you, Lord. Now, as far as Amy's question goes, she asks, can a person still accept Jesus Christ and not repent for their sins, but still be saved? Amy, no. Because, and let me explain to you this, repentance and faith are not two different things things. Repentance and faith are more like uh, two sides of the same coin. I thought I had a coin back here to show you. Yeah, here, let me show you this. Here's a decorative coin that somebody gave me some time ago uh, having to do with Jerusalem. There's a picture of Jerusalem, and here's another thing having to do with um, uh, Jerusalem in many different languages. You could say that repentance and faith are the two sides of the same coin. Faith is what it means to trust in Jesus. Repentance is what it means to give up trust in myself. I can't turn towards Jesus unless I've turned away from sin and self. The turning away from sin and self is called repentance. The turning towards Jesus is called faith. They're not two different things. They are two sides of the same coin. So if a person says that they believe in Jesus, but they refuse to turn away from sin and self, even refuse to make the attempt to turn away from sin and self, that's evidence that they don't really believe in Jesus. Because Jesus said that you would repent. Don't ever forget that when Jesus preached the kingdom of God, the first part of his message was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ preached a message of repentance. And so if somebody comes along and says, well, listen, you know, I, I, I dig Jesus. He's cool and everything. But repentance, no, no. If you are interested in Jesus, you will be interested in repentance. Okay. Um, next question comes from Millie, who asks, watching from Kenya. Millie, blessings to you. I was in Kenya earlier this year, had a wonderful time there. Um, watching from Kenya, my question is, how do you handle the pain after a spiritual battle? Millie, let me just give you the first thing that comes to mind in responding to that question. We, we understand how soldiers need a time of recuperation after battle. And it, if they... Uh, are on the front line, so to speak, for too long. It can be damaging to them. So, Millie, you just need to seek the Lord about a way for you to find some rest and restoration. This is what you need from the Lord. If you've been in a season of spiritual battle, spiritual conflict, uh, warring according to the weapons that God gives you, I think that you need wisdom from God and grace from God to get the rest that you need. If it's possible for you, I, I, I know that people live in all different kinds of circumstances and it may not be possible. If it is, uh, find a way to, to take away, uh, to take some time off, to rest, to recuperate. 
and uh, to let the Lord restore your soul. Think about yourself as being uh, similar to a soldier who's been in battle and needs some rest. And I think the Lord will um, restore your soul through that. Thank you for that question there, Millie. Next question comes from Pio, who asks, Hello, David. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 13. If I can eat meat sacrificed in the temple of an idol and I am not destroyed, why then, if the weak brother eats meat sacrificed, will he be destroyed? Okay, Pio, because God is dealing differently with that brother on that subject. Paul's dealing with this subject of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And by the way, I think this is a very relevant concept to today. Maybe I need to do some videos on this because it's, um, it's something that I think is an important message for today about Christian liberty. And Christian liberty does not mean liberty to do whatever you want to do. But part of Christian liberty means I understand that God may deal with my brother or my sister in a different way than he deals with me. So, um, in the Corinthian church, there were some believers who had no problem in their conscience eating meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, uh, a big pagan temple, because they did a lot of animal sacrifices there. They would also have a meat market there, and people would go and buy meat from the meat market at the pagan temple, and you might get it at a better price, better cut of meat. People are always looking for a bargain, looking for a good deal. And there were people in the church at Corinth who had no problem with this. Just none at all. There was no problem. Yeah, look, I, I know that Zeus or Apollos or Diana, they're nothing. They're figments of people's imagination. All I'm doing is getting a piece of meat and serving it for myself and my family. I don't care. Okay, there's that aspect. But then there's another aspect where there were other believers, maybe those who had been more um, connected to a pagan past, for whom this was a huge problem with their conscience. They could not bring themselves to do it. And so therefore they would protest greatly. I shall not, I cannot, I cannot eat this. Paul says that believers should act according to their conscience in these matters. Therefore, you would say that for the believer whose conscience did not trouble them, fine, you can eat the meat. For the believer whose conscience did trouble them, you should not eat the meat. Now, is it possible that God could change the heart, the mind, the conscience of a believer over time? Yes, he could, but um, doesn't really, maybe he will, maybe he won't. So really, uh, Pio, that's the idea. Um, the weak brother in Paul's phrasing there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, he uses the idea of a weak brother other place that has a different context. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the weak brother is the brother whose conscience would be truly troubled at eating meat sacrificed to an idol. Don't do it, Paul says. It's sin for you. But for you, brother, and in this context, the stronger brother, you have no problem eating meat sacrificed to an idol? Then go ahead. Fine. No problem. That's the context. That's what Paul's laying out. So again, I hope that helps you there, Pio. Thank you for the question. Okay, next question comes from Chris. How do I stop working in the religious mindset, putting my trust in my obedience and so forth? It's confusing because I'm not sure how to stop thinking like this. 
Well, Chris, isn't it true that uh, changing um, our habits of thought can be very difficult, can take a long time? So, Chris, really, the only thing I would say to you is keep at it. When you catch yourself thinking and working in a religious mindset, um, then, yeah, use the brakes. Stop. You don't need to go any further. Um, And all I can say is the way our minds work is that when we discipline our mind over time, harmful, destructful, uh, uh, errant thoughts become less and less frequent. Uh, but we still have to deal with them, and that's okay. So really, that, that's really what I would recommend. Stick with it and uh, let the Word of God continue to have its transforming work upon your heart and your mind. Uh, okay, thank you for that question there, Chris. Again, the tenacity, that's really what I would recommend to you in that. Uh, let me just say again, and maybe I'll say it now and then one more time, uh, thank you to all of you who pray for the work of Enduring Word, and uh, for those of you, too, who have supported the work, not only with your prayers, but uh, perhaps with your financial generosity. Um, God, through you, provides for the needs of the ministry, and we're very, very grateful for it. So thank you. You have enabled us here in 2023 to have a bigger reach than ever before. And I suppose I I should get at it. Maybe I'll get out in the first week of the year. uh, a program where I just talked to you about our reach for the year and uh, how God has blessed it. So anyway, thank you. Thank you for those who pray. Thank you for those who financially support. It's very much appreciated. All right, let me go on now to the next question from Stacy, who asks, should we call sinners for their sin? Well, Stacy, um, let me give you a great big maybe. Uh, sure, there's there's places where it's proper to confront a sinner over their sin, um, but not all the time. Remember what Jesus said about not throwing your pearls before swine. Um, What Jesus said to the disciples as he sent them forth, that if their message was going to be rejected, then just leave and shake the dust off your feet. So there's no absolute answer. You can't say never confront a sinner over their sin, or you can't say always confront a sinner over their sin. Stacy, here's the thing. You just got to learn how to listen to the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit to guide you, to guide you in your thoughts, to guide you in your actions, so that if there is an appropriate time, an appropriate situation for you to confront a sinner over their sin, then you do it, and you do it as the Lord would direct you to do it. Um, But apart from that, you probably shouldn't. So again, it's wrong to say never, It's wrong to say always what believers need to do is to the best of their imperfect ability, they need to walk in the spirit and uh, do what the Lord would have them do. Thank you for that question there, Stacy. Patience asks this question. Hi, I'm 16 and suffer from panic attacks. Last week, I surrendered to God fully and his peace came to me now and I am having them again and I prayed and whatever it took, please tell me what to do next. Okay, well, patience, um, let me say to you first, I am so happy to hear that you've made a surrender to God. 
What a wonderful thing that is. That's an expression of faith. It's an expression of repentance. God bless you, patience, for your surrender to God. And I'm going to pray that God would continue to pour out his goodness and his grace upon you for that exact thing. Now, regarding your panic attacks, it's wrong to think that coming to Jesus will take away all our problems. And I know... uh, their patients. You're probably not thinking, <laughs> I'm just trying to think if I was you in this situation. You, you might say, um, hey, uh, I'm not asking for Jesus to take away all my problems, just this one. But we can't really dictate to Jesus what problems he takes away and what problems he doesn't. So I don't want you to be discouraged that um, these panic attacks have seemed to come back. Patients, uh, you need to talk to a medical doctor about this. And um, I pray that you have a good, wise, hopefully believing medical doctor who can um, help you understand if there's some physiological cause behind this. That, that's always helpful. But patients also, you need to just continually be able to put your trust in the Lord. Again, I'm not saying to exclude whatever medical attention you need. Praise the Lord. God works through the common grace of medical attention as well. But I will say this, patients, that um, you, I, every one of us, um, we need to grow in our trust. We need to grow in our ability to cast all our cares upon him, the Lord Jesus, because he cares for us. And I I don't have any doubt that uh, somewhere in this network of things that contribute to the panic attacks. At least one aspect of this is likely cares that you take unto yourself that God would gladly bear for you. And so you need to learn how to cast your cares upon the Lord because he does care for you. Patience, I'm not trying to say that that one thing at all will make all the difference, but I think it's going to be an important step in the right direction. So Lord God, I pray for patience. And I pray that you would help uh, this dear person to receive your goodness, receive your grace, to, to grow and to have a firmly established faith in you, that you would teach them day by day about your loving care for them. And Lord, uh, I pray that you would also speak to patients, speak about um, what habits of mind, what habits of thinking you can work in them so that they can live in perfect peace, casting their cares upon you. And Lord, open the doors for them to get whatever medical attention might be appropriate for them. Bless them with this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I look now at my message board from my moderator, and here at the top it says, end of year mega lightning round. So I think he's really thrown down the gauntlet given a lightning round worthy to close out the year with. So I'll try to answer these briefly. Uh, I've had a couple complaints about the lightning round, that it's not lightning enough, and I answer the questions too long. So let's do the best I can here. Damaris asks, how do you navigate a marriage where the husband converted to Catholicism four years into our marriage? We've devoted to the Lord our four sons, our five, and our five sons, but the differences are hard and the resentment hurts. Thanks. Damaris, uh, I sympathize with you. Uh, This is a hard situation to be in. 
as in regards to the Christian faith, your husband has become something different than you married him to be. I, I pray that your husband would be very sensitive to you in this and not compel you to do things that are against your faith and your commitment to the Lord. Um, but I, I would say focus on the things that you truly have in common, a, a true faith in Jesus and a, a true trust in the triune God. Focus on the things that you have in common and hopefully um, have an honest discussion with your husband about how you will raise your sons in the faith, whether in a more Catholic expression or in a Protestant expression or, or maybe a combination of both. But there's no mistaking this is a difficult situation. I pray that God would give you both wisdom and a lot of love in the midst of this situation because there is obviously some sense of betrayal at least in regards to the Christian faith, your husband has become something different than what you, what he was when you married him. That's difficult. Sorry to hear it, Demars. Adonis asks, uh, how would you respond to a Judaist who says that Matthew 2, 5, and 18 can't be a fulfillment of Hosea 11, 1 and Jeremiah 31, 15, respectively, because those Old Testament passages had already been fulfilled? Um. Again, the Matthew Hosea passage is out of Egypt, I've called my son. The Matthew Jeremiah passage is um, the voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Listen, um, I think part of this, Adonis, is someone just having to agree that there's a divine inspiration behind the New Testament. If a person refuses to see any divine inspiration in the New Testament, then they're just going to write these things off. They're just going to say, well, it doesn't matter. It's not important. It was already fulfilled. So I think a lot of the specific proof of that, to be able to say that, yes, there was a fulfillment, but there's an ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ, um, that some, comes from a person who trusts in the uh, divine inspiration of the New Testament. I think that's what it's rooted in. I don't think that there's much of an exegetical case apart from divine inspiration that can be said that would prove that, at least not one that comes immediately to mind. It's this way with many passages in the Old Testament that point towards the Messiah. Of course, we understand the Messiah to be Jesus Christ, but those who don't want to claim Jesus the Messiah, they come up with their own ideas. So, um, really, it, it's rooted in the divine inspiration of the New Testament, which comes back to the linchpin. I'm not saying it's the only thing, but it comes back to the linchpin of the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then what he said is true, and what he claimed to do is true, and those that he appointed to divinely represent him were true, meaning the gospel writers. So, in essence, this all comes back to the truth and the evidence from the resurrection. Thanks for that, Adonis. Next question comes from N. Uh, Devige. Um, my question, which preacher's Bible commentary do you love the most? All right, well, just as you ask that question, uh, probably the preacher's commentary that I love the most is the work of Charles Spurgeon. I'm a big Spurgeon fan, and whenever I'm teaching through a passage, I'm always careful to read whatever sermon uh, 
Spurgeon preached or whatever he spoke on that passage. So he would be the preacher that I would look to the most um, just to see what he said about a particular text. But as for a single other Bible commentator, ah, man, I don't know. It's rough. It's rough to give like a one-person answer Um, because there's several commentators that I really like. But if I were to pick one other commentary on the entire Bible that I would recommend, uh, I would say uh, I like Adam Clark's commentary. Uh, Again, do I agree with him every point? No, not at all. But I I think Adam Clark has a lot of insight into the scripture. Uh, So you you can look him up online. That's Clark with an E at the end. C-L-A-R-K-E. All right. Charlotte asks, when the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, will God require the Jews to do the same sacrifices they did in the Old Testament? Charlotte, no. God will not require the Jews to do the same sacrifices. I believe they will do the same sacrifices, but it won't be because God requires them. Let me tell you what God requires of the Jewish people now, not to offer sacrifices at the temple, but to see the sacrificial system as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what God requires of the Jewish people now. So I believe that there will be a third temple. I believe that there will be sacrifices there, but it won't be because God has commanded it other than just that he has allowed it in his providential plan. But it won't be because of God's command that they do this, uh, because God's command is for them to look at the atoning work of Jesus Christ in all of its fullness. Thank you for that question there, Charlotte. J.M. asks, do you uh, have any specific thoughts, feelings, comments, origin concerns with the SPECK um, Bible study method? All right, JM, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know what the S-P-E-C-K is. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what that is. So I can't speak to it. You know, when, when I see those letters written out, my thoughts immediately go to S-P-C-K. I leave out the E because there was a uh, a British Society for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge. And there's several books in my library, I can't find them, that were published under the SPCK. Uh, But you're not talking about the SPCK. You're talking about the SPEC, Bible Study Method, S-P-E-C-K. Since I don't know what that acronym stands for, I can't give you an opinion on it. Uh, Maybe ask that later when I've had a chance to look into it. Olga asks a question. Hi, David. Would you please explain if the last trumpet is in 1 Corinthians 15 is the same as the seventh trumpet in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15? Olga, no, I don't believe that they are the same trumpet. Um, If I could look up quickly on my commentary of 1 Corinthians 15, um, where it speaks about the trumpet... Let's see. Uh, In my commentary, I say this regarding the last trumpet. Um, The last trumpet may not refer to the last trumpet of the seven trumpets of Revelation at all, but simply to the last trumpet believers here on this earth. This last trumpet may be connected with the trumpet of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, but not with the trumpets of the angels in Revelation uh, 11. And so there's a distinction between the trumpets of the angels and the trumpet of God. Uh, 
In addition, uh, Henry Ironside said that the last trumpet was a figure of speech that came from the Roman military when they would break camp. And uh, the idea would be that the last trump is just telling believers on the earth, it's time to break camp. So I don't believe that it's the same trumpet. And um, in my commentary on 1 Corinthians 15, I spell out some of the reasons why. Thank you, Olga, for that question. Tony asked the question, uh, can my free will get in the way of my life's purpose? Well, uh, Tony, if you're answering the question just from a human horizontal perspective, yes, of course. You can make bad choices that will get in the way of the fulfillment of your life's purpose. Yes, that's how it is. Now, are you going to say, is there an overarching plan of God that works? in the Yes, it's true. But let's talk as people to people. We're not, we're not flying at 35,000 feet. We're, we're, we're talking on a human level. And yes, your real choices, your bad choices, your good choices have an influence on the rest of your life. Uh, let's not live in a world um, that thinks only of theological abstractions and not enough about real life things as they come to us daily. Um, Amy asks this question. Uh, Pastor David, what is your view of the show The Chosen? Some say it's dangerous to watch, but others say it has led them to Christ. It seems there's a lot of debate over it. Uh, thank you very much. Amy, um, Okay, I, I have to say this a bit as a confession that I've only watched, um, I think, an episode and a half of The Chosen. So I really don't think that I, I've watched enough to give truly an informed opinion about it. But, but I almost would say this, that there's three things that I, I think that immediately come to mind about The Chosen. And look, I, I'm, I'm open to learning more to understanding this in different perspective, but you're asking me, and I'm just giving you my immediate reaction here. There's three things that come to mind. Number one, uh, that for a biblically grounded and mature Christian, there's very little possible harm because they understand the difference between what the Bible says and what might be depicted in a Bible drama. Uh, even though I've only seen uh, an episode and a half of The Chosen, I was really struck at how much they put into the story that isn't in the Bible at all. That's just pure conjecture. And I've said, I wish what they would have in The Chosen is a red or a green light that flashes all the time. It should flash green when the content is from the Bible, and it should, content, it should flash red when the content is speculation just so everybody knows. I, I wish they would honestly do something like that. That would be awesome. Okay, so I think there's very little problem with the chosen with a biblically uh, grounded, mature believer. For someone who is a very new believer or ignorant of God's word or immature in the faith, I think there could be some danger. And I'll tell you what some of the danger is. They, they think that the chosen is way cooler than their Bible. I don't want to read my Bible. I want to watch The Chosen. I like that story better. And if that's somebody's reaction, um, I don't think that's a good thing. Uh, so I can see where it could be harmful for somebody to give them wrong and replacing ideas about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what Jesus said that aren't from the scriptures, but from the imagination of a screenwriter. So that's another thing. But the third thing I think is 
and I can't get very way far from this, is that anything that draws attention to Jesus, God will use. Look, we've seen this many times before, haven't we? Uh, that goofy artistic depictions get out. Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar, Last Temptation of Christ, on and on. Weird depictions of Jesus go out in the world. And God has a way of using those things despite themselves sometimes to draw attention to Jesus. So th that's what I would say, Amy. Um, not much harm for the grounded Christian. Could be some harm for an ungrounded Christian, but God often finds way to bring glory to himself when any attention is brought to Jesus. Um, that's where my mind's at right now. Again, I, I don't think much about The Chosen. I haven't watched much of it. I don't think I could give a really intelligent observation beyond that quick reaction that I just gave you right now. Okay, Andres, is it wrong to call Mary the Queen of Heaven? Yes. Mary is nowhere, Mary is not the Queen of Heaven. No. She's the mother of Jesus. Okay, lightning round, moving on. Less. My pastor's wife is also a pastor in my church. Since I heard you teach that women should not be pastors, I'm not sure how to treat her in the role that she has. Well, Les, um, if you're going to be committed to that church, you should treat her respectfully. Um, but I, I don't know that you have to regard her as a spiritual authority over your life. Look, look to your pastor, not to his wife, even though she also carries the title of pastor. And I don't know if you've seen the video I have on the YouTube channel, uh, what I would say to a woman pastor, but I think you should watch that. That might be helpful for you as well. Uh, Grizzle MC, 1662. Why do you think hell exists? Don't you think it's too much? Well, Grizzle MC, 1662. Um, do I think hell's too much? Um, Grizzle, what I think is irrelevant. What's relevant is what the Bible says. If hell exists, all my wishing it didn't exist isn't going to make any difference. And all my, if it doesn't exist, all my wishing that it did exist isn't going to make any difference. What matters is what the Bible says. Is there a hell? And as for whether or not it's too much, that's for God to decide. It's not for me to decide. I thank the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that I am completely unable to send anybody to hell. It's out of my hands. That's not my role. That's not my place. That's the place of the righteous God who dwells in heaven. And he'll deal with that. I don't need to. So is it too much? Is it not enough? Listen, that's the Lord's work. That's what the Lord does. And I don't have to concern myself about it. So uh, I do believe that hell exists. I think the Bible speaks about it. And it is very relevant to me, Grizzle, that nobody spoke of hell more in the Bible than Jesus. Jesus spoke of hell more than anybody else in the Bible. That's something that people really have to reckon with. Lucho asks, do you believe Seventh-day Adventists are going to heaven, even though they believe that they must keep the Sabbath for salvation? Lucho, yes, I believe that now being a Seventh-day Adventist is not going to get you to heaven. We don't go to heaven based on what group we belong to. We go to heaven because we have personally put our faith in Jesus Christ. B because we are part of God's people, chosen from before the foundation of the world, expressed by our living, active faith in Jesus Christ. 
So God doesn't say this group goes, this group doesn't go. So somebody's not going to go to heaven or hell dependent on whether or not they were part of a Seventh-day Adventist congregation. But there are many, many people in the Seventh-day Adventist churches who are born-again believers. They really love Jesus. I think some of their doctrines are in error, but they love Jesus and they are trying to serve him to the best of their ability. So, yes, many Seventh-day Adventists, they'll be in heaven with us, of course. And then Ken asks this question, uh, now that I'm a husband and a dad, what are some things I should be doing regularly or thinking about more? I want to be the best Christian husband and dad that I can possibly be. Ken, what a great question. What a great question for us to make the last question of 2023 on. Ken, I would just simply recommend this. Um, take a spiritual concern for the welfare of your family. Understand that God has made you something of a priest or a pastor in your home. That should affect the way that you pray for your family, the way that you read the Bible with your family, the way that you pray with your family, the way that you make sure your family is involved in a congregation. You need to look at yourself as, in a sense, a priest or a pastor of your home. So uh, pray for your family. Pray with the, the children in your family uh, and your wife, of course, um, individually and collectively. Read the Bible with them. Pour into them spiritually. Ask God to show you all what it means for you to serve in this symbolic way of being a priest and a pastor for your family. Um, and then make your home a place, a lot of laughter and a lot of joy. I think that's a very powerful magnetic thing because the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy, the Bible tells us. Uh, pray that God has your home marked by those aspects of the kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy. That would be a great verse to have as a motto for your home, for your family, that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy, and that's what you want to see in your home. Hope that helps you, Ken. And thank you, everybody. Thank you for joining me today. And I do just want to close out this, the last Q&A for the year 2023, by again saying one more time, thank you. Thank you to all of you who pray for the ongoing work of Enduring Word. Uh, we're able to reach literally millions of people. Millions of people, not every year, millions of people every week with the Bible resources that we have. Um, uh, online at the Bible Commentary, our excellent app available on Android and iOS platforms. And I got to say, um, the work that we do on version with the Bible reading plans, our amazing YouTube work, uh, all of it together, the translation work we do in so many languages. W what a blessing it is. Thank you for your prayers. And thanks to you, uh, to whom God has put it on your heart to support the work of Enduring Word. It's always welcome. N nobody should feel guilty if they don't feel led or they're unable to support. Uh, but listen, it's always welcome. And if God puts you on our heart, it's very appreciated. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you again for your prayers and your support. I, I think God is working through you to continue to do something really wonderful in the world by providing absolutely free Bible resources that 
really reach a broad audience, everyday believers and people who have been pastors for decades uh, in many different languages. I, I think God is doing a good work through it. And I'm grateful for all of you who are partnering with us in the work through your prayers and through your support and just through your participation. It's a great blessing. So thank you. That's going to be it for the year uh, 2023. Join us next week and we'll be together for another question and answer time. God willing. And if we live, God bless you. And bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.